Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with radio and TV presenter OJ Borg. Before we get into it, I'd just like to play you a bit of this. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Begin at the beginning. You were here to pass the time. The sound of a sleeping city made you feel alive. A thousand hearts and Karen, afraid to meet you right. A single point of reference that you were trying to find. Though it was all you had, you were still sad. You never will look back. You never had to hide. That's a sample of my new song, Listen In, which has been released on the 1st of August. You can get access to a secret link with a free download of the song by joining my mailing list. Information about that is on my website, robertlaymusic.co.uk, where you will also find more information about the podcast and previous guests that I've had. I'm getting a lot of feedback about the podcast and it's fantastic to hear from you. It would be amazing if you could subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, rate, share and review it because doing all of that just encourages the algorithms to push it to more people. Okay, here's my conversation with OJ Borg. Hi OJ, how are you? Good, thank you very much mate. Very good, how are you? I'm alright, thank you. Yeah, how has um, lockdown and stuff like that affected your line of work at the moment? Are you in the same studio that you would normally be in, or have things had to change? My life hasn't changed at all, really, which is, is, a, is twofold, really. So when, when lockdown happened, um, I was deemed as broadcast critical, which I guess was, a, was quite nice, really, to be told that. Um, validated what I did, uh, and I still came into the studio. We just I had to sit further away from my producer than I normally would, and I had to go near anyone. But the thing is, I do a radio show between midnight and three. Um, it turns out I was socially distant already before lockdown because that's the worrying thing. When anybody goes to you, they go, oh, my life hasn't changed at all. The reason for that is because you're already socially distant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so lockdown hasn't, work-wise, hasn't really affected me. Uh, the other stuff I do, which is Zwift, um, which is, I don't know if you know about Zwift, it's you jump on a bike, it's on a turbo trainer, it's online cycle racing, which sounds very nerdy, and it is but it's amazing. and I love it. And I was hosting some races. Uh, and instead of going to the studio in London to do it, um, I was doing it from my shed for a bit and then from my kitchen, which I called my cyber kitchen. And that was weird in a way, streaming it out, especially as I had the same thing that other people have where their kids uh, run through and try and take biscuits off them. I was having that from the start. <laughs> I, was a, I, was very much a, I was very much a breaking new ground with that. So yeah, my, my lockdown work-wise hasn't really been that much different. And what about your audience then? So as you mentioned, you're doing that show. It's midnight till 3 a.m., isn't it? I think I'm ready to... It is, yeah. Midnight so till 3. Have you found that the audience has changed a bit? Are there different people tuning in because life has changed no, for them? No, not really. I mean, it's an interesting audience we have 
on the radio. It's a really interesting audience um, in the sense that it's a lot of people like me who are probably quite isolated anyway. If you work in the night, if you're a worker, if you're a truck driver or you work shifts or, or things like that, you tend to be working on such a different such a different clock to anyone else. There's just less people around. And that's the thing. In the middle of the night, those who work the big hours, um, you don't see people. You know, Everything's empty. The roads are emptier. Workplaces are emptier. Filling stations are emptier. Everything's emptier. So my audience, I've had a lot of very nice messages from people. And I, I, don't, I don't deal with praise very well. I'm much better at criticism. I don't know. I, if, if you find this, Robert, we're um, through my whole life, you know, obviously the ups and downs of, of doing what we do, people throw a lot of sh- what hang on what's the what's your what's your what's your reasoning on swearing here i was about to drop an s-bomb <laughs> it's fine you know as long okay. as i remember when i edit it so i can tick that little box on the podcast <laughs> thing that says expletives. no let's not do it then so what's right. weird is i've i've never sworn on the radio my entire career <laughs> I, I lie i accidentally i took a lot i did my when i used to work in kiwara three i did my back in and i took a load of painkillers and still did my radio so show <laughs> and i tried to say website and i slurred the site part and said shite i said web shite <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't intentional. It was accidental. Um, so, yeah, I, I find it difficult to take praise from people. And I've had a lot of people say, you know, through this lockdown where things have been up and down. And it was the people who listen to my show a lot who get in touch are people who are driving around. So they're delivering you know, food to supermarkets. They're still delivering things. Their lives went on. Not a lot of people listen to my show. They've been furloughed because they were key workers, a lot of mm-hmm. NHS people as well. So. The audience didn't change. They, I think they were grateful for a voice in the night. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a good show to do. It's a good show to do anyway, but it felt like I was doing something worthy during the lockdown. I would imagine that you have quite a, a sort of audience that let you know that you're doing something useful for them and they're, they're in touch, whether it's talking about the music that you play in or... Oh, yeah, yeah, we have. It's a very busy show. I mean, we, we, from when we started it two and a half years ago, I set out for it to be... It's not a show that's at night. It's a show that's on the radio. It just happens to be at night. Mm. So it's very much like a breakfast show or any other show of the day. We didn't want to, we didn't play slow songs. We didn't make out that people were tired because if you're awake at quarter past two in the morning and you're going to be working through till six, you don't need me playing some hideous lullaby. Oh, it's the mellow sounds. There's enough radio stations to do that sort of stuff anyway. So yeah, people were getting in touch and it's, it has always been a busy show. And as I say, I, I don't deal well with people saying nice things. It's just it's just unusual. It's only really what I've been doing this job. So I always get really embarrassed and self-conscious about it, which is weird for an extrovert, I guess. <laughs> I'm great at being an extrovert until it's about me, then I get really introverted. Interesting. So when you say you're better at criticism, does that mean that criticism... Don't, don't, are you, don't lay into me, Robert. Just lay into me now. <laughs> I'd like to just, just to correct that, if I may. <laughs> no, I, I often ask people about criticism because I think it's really interesting. Criticism and comparison are the two things that I find interesting to talk to people about. So... Does it mean that, do you mean that your criticism doesn't really affect you and you're not bothered or you're just more oh, God. used to it? Of course or... it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. Um, in your in your world as an actor, do you get a lot of notes? When, you, when you've acted in something, do you, do you get given a lot of notes? Yeah. Um, yeah. And in music as well. Everyone has an opinion, of course. And some people's mm. opinions are great. Well, everyone's opinion is valid, I suppose, but some are really worth listening to. But the problem with the creative thing is I find there's not really a right and a wrong answer, is there? So where you could have, I mean, wow. something could be shit, I suppose. If it's, if, if, if it's not constructive, if it's not constructive, is it good criticism? If mm. somebody is just laying into you for what it is, and we, we, you know, we live in a world, um, I, there was a Mike Tyson quote that I saw the other day that was great. And it says that social media has made everyone happy to be rude to other people because they're not getting yeah. punched in the face. I mean, that's that's the point. I mean, if half the stuff that you would say on social media, and I have always lived my life on social media, that I do not ever say anything contentious. I never have a go at anyone. 
because A, I don't think it's a good look. And B, I wouldn't want it said to me. And C, I don't want to get caught out at some point where I've been having a go at someone. Mm. If I have a snark, it tends to be somebody said something about me and I'll retweet it. But it doesn't happen that often anymore. And in all honesty, I have a very fractious relationship with social media anyway, and I try and stay off it as much as possible. I really do. So, no, I don't. I think if somebody's just having a pop at you mm. for the sake of it, if it's just they're either jealous or they hate you or they want to be funny, because there's only there only seems to be two emotions, especially on Twitter, and that is saying something very extreme or something bland. There doesn't seem to be a middle ground for me on social media. So, when when you're given notes as an actor or a musician, does it tend to be constructive are they good constructive notes that you get yeah i mean it depends what who they're coming from if they're coming from somebody who's involved in the creative side of it so you know someone who's written the thing or is directing it then they can be and of course it's worth having a different point of view pointed out to you sometimes because they might be right <laughs> you know in, yeah. in, the, oh, in the creative process and it's happened to me a few times where i've really disagreed and they were right and then it's you know, you've got to give yourself permission to be on the other side of that as well, where if you really think something, if you stand your ground, you've got to expect that the other person is going to, yeah. going to take that as well. And I think, I think when you've done something long enough, it's sometimes like I've been, like I, I tend to agree with most critique of me. And I think the team I work with now, we worked together for two and a half years and it was never rocky to start with, but I guess there was a lot of feeding each other out. And at times they would say to me, um, you know, why don't we do something this way? And I think, well, hang on a second here. You know, I've been doing radio for nigh on two decades and you've been in, ra- you've been in radio five years or 10 years or whatever. So I've been in it twice the amount of time. You know, how, who are you to tell me to do something differently? Mm. And sometimes I think, yeah, actually, that's probably the right way of being. I know how to do things. I know how to do things well for me, not necessarily the right way for someone else, but I know what works for me. And I guess the fact that I work on radio too means that what I'm doing is working. But other times you have to step out of, I am this, I am whatever, I've got 20 years experience, I have this standing in industry. Just because somebody's been in something for a couple of years does not mean that they don't have a better outlook on what you're doing than you do. Fresh ideas and all that. Mm. So, yeah, I think the point was, I when I started in radio, in commercial radio, it was hardcore. You would have things called snoops. And the fact that emotionally I got through them was still, you know, I still am... I'm amazed at it today because the first snoop I ever had, I remember I, I was, I was working for five pounds a show and John Evington was his name. And he, and he snooped me and he basically ripped apart everything I had done. And I was, I was, it was the first time as a, like a, a professional radio presenter mm. paid five pound a show that I'd ever been snooped. And I was so happy to be done. And he was the boss of the group at the time. And I walked in and he tore it all apart. And it wasn't necessarily that he was wrong. And it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't constructive, but, it was delivered. You know, they talk about the critique sandwich, don't they? Where you have, you have, com- you know, compliment is your bread. Then you have your filling, which is your shit. And then you have another bit of bread at the end. This was all shit filling. You know, this was literally, this was like, there was no bread. Bread had been forgotten about. He just threw it at me. And I was, you know, I, I walked out and I, it must have been, I, you know, hang dog face. And he went, well, you know, but it was all right. I was like, why didn't you say no? Why did you just do this to me? I mean, but I guess you do that sort of stuff and it makes you a bit more Teflon and you learn from it. And it, it means that if you do a bad show, which we all have bad days, of course we do. It doesn't affect me emotionally like it used to maybe when I was starting out. If I did a bad show, I was like, well, why am I even bothering? Now, if I do a bad show, other people think, why is he bothering? But it doesn't bother me. <laughs> and what do you find the most painful criticism? Like, is it 
is it when someone just misunderstands what you've done and doesn't get it? Or is it when someone actually points out something that you're aware of already? The, the problem with working on radio too, there aren't many people who point out what you're doing wrong. And I, you know, and I, I, I come from a background, as I say before, where I like it to be pointed out what I'm doing wrong. Because mm. otherwise, you don't ever change it, and then you get sacked. Um, so, I don't, know. I don't mind. Point it out to me, and I, I will change it, I think is the way. But it, does, it doesn't get pointed out that much more anymore. If we're talking about critique from people on social media, I don't even get that much anymore. And it's not that I'm amazing. I just don't think the social world that I, that I roll in mm. is, is that sort of world anymore. I guess there's some element of how you react to it as well. I mean, there's. Yeah. I'm quite surprised sometimes by people who were, I won't say any names, but quite well-regarded actors and stuff, you know, very talented people, and there'll be one less than glowing review of something they've done, and they'll they'll go in and they'll defend it against this random person. I always sort of think, why? <laughs> you know, like, oh, why are you doing that? Because it's like, it's, it's probing a painful tooth, isn't it? Mm. In some ways, I mean, we all have we all have our egos and I guess a lot of us feel like imposters it's imposter syndrome so in some ways I guess when you're looking I mean I don't get me wrong like other people the places I get criticism if I went onto a radio forum people are like who is this guy why is he doing this he's rubbish and I know the sort of people and the people who've dogged me my entire career just don't like me the thing is though a lot of the time they they talk about things as if they really know like they know what I'm getting paid or know what the situation is you think you're saying this with so much confidence and you don't know. Mm. But I think sometimes because you believe you're an imposter, you're almost searching out that validation. You're almost searching out and you find somebody who goes, oh, you know, this play was rubbish or that show he did was crap. And then you go, oh, God, I am rubbish. And then your ego kicks in. I mean, this this is me just working through a few issues <laughs> right in this podcast right now. You know, I, whether this is true or not, I don't know. I just, But maybe that is the reason. Maybe that's the reason I look it out. When you've been in stuff, when you've released songs, do you search out negative criticism? I don't know. Will you search? Will you search your name on Twitter? <laughs> I don't know. Search it out, but it's definitely that thing of the negative ones will loom larger in your head than all the good stuff, and it, it happens in all kinds of ways. So, like you know, we can't gig at the moment, so we're doing live streams, yeah. and every artist on my kind of network is doing live streams and that. And I know that I don't want to do this, but I will look in at other people's and be like, oh, how many people watch their thing live? Oh, yeah. okay. That's that's a few more than I – and I know it doesn't matter. It's all right. And I just – it doesn't matter. But it does all. matter. It does matter. And that's the problem with social media and live streaming is mm. you – so I, I do a lot of work in esports as well. And the esports world is full of streamers. Mm. And I think you're sent mad. And I think if you're on it, you're an Instagrammer as well or any form of influencer, you're sent mad by metrics. Mm. because in radio, on TV, in a film to an extent, the way that they rate these things, the way they work it out is via some sort of formula. You know, they obviously can't work out how many people are watching at any one time. So in radio, it's via something called Rajar, which is blatantly a ridiculous system and doesn't really work because you go around and you give a book that people write in. I mean, it's such a 1980 solution for other ways it could be done nowadays. But that's the system we have. So realistically, I do a radio show and I could guess how many people are listening by the amount of texts we get. Is it a busy night or is it not? doesn't naturally mean how many people are there. If you go to, you know, if you star in a film, the film's almost done. You put the film out and it makes X amount of money at the box office. You still don't really know how many people watched it or how mm. many people watch it stream the rest of it. If you are a streamer or you are doing something which is 
whatever you're you're doing some has a metric to it or an instagrammer you can see by the amount of likes or the people who are literally online right now and i think it will send you mad mm-hmm. because if you do something you know you see streamers on twitch who maybe start getting a little racy and they see their numbers go up surely mentally you will do that and it's the same with instagram and i talked to my wife about this that we both aren't i don't particularly like it she doesn't particularly like it putting our kids on our instagrams because i don't believe they've chosen to be on it yeah you know you, you, you see with the mummy and the daddy bloggers all the time the kids as soon as they get to an age they're like no i'm out leave me out of this um but we have both noticed if we put our kids on any post on our instagram it gets more likes therefore what do you do on mm. the next post if mm. you put a post that doesn't have many it, it gets 100 likes you'd go back to the one that got 500 likes and had your kids on it so i think it's i think you will be sent mad by streaming and that's what you say you know you will You'll stream something. Why are they getting more likes than me? Why are they getting more listens than me? Why are they getting more watches than me? The, mm. the streaming world is going to send us all mad. Yeah, absolutely. And social media in general has that kind of that quality, doesn't it? I've said this a few times that like what we're going through at the moment, it's really showing us the best and the worst of that whole world really oh, yeah. the best in the sense that we can keep in touch with each other and we can mm. see news and all this kind of thing but then on the other hand particularly it just feels like it's getting worse in terms of the negativity and like you were mentioning earlier just the way that people kind of communicate with each other i definitely agree with you when you're saying the middle ground bit seems to have gone so if you have a discussion with someone in real life and you have a, a different view you can sort of get to the point where okay we still disagree but i can see that you're a genuine person i can see where you're coming from that don't really happen on twitter it's like no. you disagree with me therefore you're the enemy you're this you're that and it's it just sort of magnifies itself doesn't it and it kind of it's that echo chamber thing as well isn't it that you kind of only follow people that you agree with oh because i i thought i thought labor were going to win the last election if i followed yeah. in my echo chamber um paul singer who is the comedian yeah. and one of the you know he's from chasers. um one, one of the chasers yeah. yeah he said during that elect during that election he said you know we all talk about it being an echo chamber maybe you've just got good friends <laughs> You know, that, that was his way of looking at it, which I thought was a nice angle. But yeah, of course, my echo chamber is weird. And that's why we all lull ourselves into false sense of security. And I know for a fact that I, when I read news, I, I'm obsessed by American politics. Mm. But I will only read the news which is, which is negative towards Trump. Because that, you know, I don't read the stuff that's super negative because it almost seems unbelievable. It's almost as bad as the stuff that's right wing, yeah. the stuff that's super left. The stuff in the middle, which is, you know, I guess the true stuff. I will read stuff that's pro-Trump. I don't want to read it. So I just ignore it immediately. Therefore, I'm, I'm reading what I want. We live in a world which is so myopic. We live in a world where you can be super served by whatever you want. Mm. You decide you want to be right wing. You've got right wing radio stations. Mm. You want to be left wing. You've got left wing radio stations. We live in, a, which is great. There is so much content out there. Unfortunately, it is, it is a bit of a bear pit a lot of the time. And I, for one, sort of wish social media didn't exist. <laughs> I think I'd be happier, not necessarily more productive, because I'm sure I'd find something else to waste my time on. Mm. But I think I'd be less paranoid about stuff. I think many people would. Because you say you can look at what you agree with, but also you can go out of your way to get annoyed about things as well. Which yeah. Can, where the whole can. trolling things come from, isn't it? You, people are seeking things out that triggers them sometimes. It's like, yeah. well, don't. Well, when was the last time you had a discussion with somebody in the pub? I mean, obviously not in lockdown because <laughs> we don't go to pubs anymore. But when was the last time you had a discussion in the pub? And we've all had it, where you've fallen out with somebody where you have had a moment, you've had a different opinion about yep. politics, about football, about how you bake a loaf of sourdough. You know, you've had a fallout about, yep. you know, what's the best biscuit, whatever it is, however, however minor you've had a fallout. By the end of it, you don't punch each other in the face and block each other, do you? It doesn't happen, but it will do on social media. To go back to Tyson, 
if you want to be rude in real life, you will get punched in the face. Mm. That doesn't happen on social media. Mm. Everyone's a keyboard warrior. Everyone's an internet rambo. Mm. And I think with celebrities and stuff, there's that thing that people don't necessarily remember that they're talking about or to a real person. It's mm. there's a kind of, of there's a media thing, isn't there? So it's not like yeah. not like going up to someone in the pub and saying, "I think you're shit at your job." It's just like they're this thing yeah. that you can attack like that. I guess there was a radio presenter I used to work with called Simon James. Or was it Hill who said it? it was Simon James and Hill at breakfast on Kerrang. And I remember somebody was hated what I was doing. I used to work with Kate Lawler, and they were really laying into me and laying into Kate. And he sort of said, "Part of the job is you put yourself on the parapet. You know, you mm. put yourself up on a mound, and you are there for people to take pot shots at." doesn't mean it hurts any less if you get hit, but I guess you've made that choice. The problem is, I guess, people of my level, I have no real clout on social media. You know, 20,000 on Twitter, 6,000 on Instagram. It's hardly like I'm a big name on either of these things. Um, if, if I had a million followers, then I, do you become numb to it or does it still hurt? Mm, it's interesting. I guess yeah it depends on your personality as well i suppose because everybody's quite you know an individual still even when they're at those low levels true but i you know does it still hurt if you've got a million followers on twitter and you see that one that says you're a dick does it still hurt you mm. but I, I do i do feel the world would be better without social media mm. i don't you know yes it does some good as you say yes of course it does some good yes it brings people together yes it's creative Yes, it's a way of getting ideas out. Yes, it's a way of engaging younger people in politics and in different ideas. But do the negatives of what it does to you, does it outweigh the, pos- outweigh the positives? My, this has got deep. <laughs> it has. Can we then? Let's go back, if you wouldn't mind. And could you give us a bit of an mm. outline of how you got to the point where you are now on Radio 2 in the middle of the night? Um, are you from Leicester originally, I believe? I am, yeah. I grew up in Leicester. Uh, my God, do you want me to do my career? I've had a very ragtag <laughs> career. Well, the first thing is then, was radio uh, an objective from quite early on or did it come through something else? Uh, yeah, it was an objective for early on, from very early on. I loved it. I loved the medium. And I think most people who work in radio will say the same thing. They just, there's something about radio, the immediacy of you come up with an idea. I mean, literally, while I'm on air, I'll think of something. Mm-hmm. I'll get my producer to download it. We'll do the idea. It will be funny. It will be not funny, but it's gone. And it's just that, immediate creativity of radio that i think of something to say and i say it on tv if you want to be creative it takes a team of six or seven people you have to make it, you have to book it in you have to edit it the rest of it and i just i've always loved how quick and how brilliant radio is for that when i started off i wanted to be an actor a very you know i was i did a ton of acting but i the problem was i think i'm a cynic and i think you have to not be a cynic to be an actor uh, and i think that was always my problem expand on that a little bit for me it's interesting because you have to believe in what you're doing. Uh-huh. And I think I was I was always so cynical about me that I would get into a role. And I did all the training, did all the training. I did. I've got a, you know, an acting degree, if you can call it that. Um, but the problem was the people who were the better actors, the people who truly believed in what they were doing. A lot of what I was doing, you know, don't be wrong, like the funny and the comedy stuff was all fine. But I, I just think I was too cynical at a youngest age. You know, I wanted to almost be the person who was commentating on what the actors were doing. Mm-hmm. I liked the fact that I, with radio and with presenting, you could sort of stand outside it and it, you didn't have to be, I don't know, didn't have to be taken as seriously to do it was my thinking. But I, you know, I got to uh, about four or five years ago and I started taking acting classes again because I wanted, and I still hanker really, still inside of me, there's a there's an ambition at some point to act. I'd love to, I love it. I love the whole thing. Part of doing a radio show is acting. Of course, yeah. And I picked up little jobs here or there where I've 
I've had to act a role out. And I've loved it. I've absolutely loved it. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I started off doing. But I remember listening to Mark Keane, who used to do a radio show on Mercia. And I was like, I loved him. All my friends listened to him and he was brilliant. Really good. It was part funny. I remember him doing a link off the back of, off the back of James and sit down mm. where, uh, he goes, sit, you know, if you find yourself ridiculous, says the song. And he was like, yes, that's me. And he came on the mic and I was just like, Oh my God, that's so funny. I used to sit there painting my games workshop models, ultramarines. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it was what I wanted to do. And then I couldn't tell you every place I've worked in because I can't even remember anymore, but I bounced around a long time in very small commercial radio stations looking for a break. And my big break came, uh, when I got picked up by VH1 to do a show called Radio Gaga, where I'd sent in uh, a really crappy showreel of myself, but I'd put a bit of me radio presenting on it. You know, I'd done all the usual stuff, you know, a bit of out and about the stuff you'd put on a showreel. And they were looking for radio presenters and they asked me in for a screen test and I got it off the back of that. And people always said, you were really lucky. And I was. But what they don't realise is I'd sent five showreels over the preceding, you know, sort of three and a half years fairly regularly and I'd never even got a callback. So, you know, you make your own look. Uh, yeah, and then from VH1, I did a fair few TV shows, did the National Lottery for a while. The radio stations I worked on then were, I worked on Kerrang! with Kate Lawler for a year in Birmingham. I worked on XFM. I worked on Absolute. I did a football show there. I then started at Key 103. I then did a lot, when my start with the BBC, I was, I was on and off covering at Radio 2 then for Janice Long anyway, and uh, Alex Lester. And I started working at Five Live. So I did some newsy stuff. I did a lot of cycling stuff for them and sports stuff. Um, and then out of the blue, I got a call saying, do you want to do, do, you want to do Radio 2? Do you want to take over nights? I was like, yeah, I do. The thing was, I was on the verge of taking a job in LA at that point with esports. I'd been offered a, a fairly, a really good job in LA. And myself and my wife were working out whether this was the job we were going to do, whether it was worth it. The money was good. It was a six-month contract with a, chance of two years and i was like yeah let's do it and literally just as i was about to pull the trigger on that ready to call me hence i ended up here working in salford and i'm glad i chose this job absolutely glad i chose this job because it's what i've been angling for for years you know yeah. what i mean i've been you know working hard staying in touch with people uh i sometimes think what would happen if i took that would it have been nice to have lived in la for a bit yes it would have been I don't think I'd be still doing what I was doing now if I took that job. And mm. I love this. And every time I come into the studio, as tired as I am today, yeah. it's still a great job to have. Absolutely. And it's just the sort of circumstances of life, isn't it? Because had you taken that job and Radio 2 had called a little bit later and you weren't in a position to do it. Yeah. I wonder how that would have felt. Yeah. I mean, they after my first year here, they came, the, the job in LA came back to me and asked, they said, you know, would you be interested in coming out this year but doing a different role? Mm. But the problem was, Esports involves a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling. Okay. And don't get me wrong, the, it's a great life, and I love esports. I love computer games. And the audience is great. But, and here's the big but, I'd be away from home a lot. And no point having kids if I'm going to be away from home all the time. Mm. I look at all these, a lot of people that I know who have jobs either, like a mate of mine works for a cycling team. He's away loads, and it works for him, and it works for his, his partner and their kid. Uh, and it works for journalist friends of mine who are away all the time and works for other people I know. But I just, it wouldn't have worked for me. I'd have, I'd have rotated off the rails very quickly. So that very uh, quickly, that radio two thing then was a was a phone call. But as you'd mentioned, how much hustle had gone into that beforehand? So not particularly that job, but the the stuff that's come along the way. 
You mentioned getting the VH1 job because you sent showreels in a load of times. Yeah, mate, my life's one big hustle. My mm. life's one big hustle. I love a hustle and I love a side <laughs> hustle. It's all about the hustle. Sometimes I worry that I enjoy the hustle more than I enjoy what I get. Interesting. I do worry about that. Mm. I do worry about that slightly. That for me, the joy is in the chase. So I had a production company for a while and it worked really well because my business partner was, um, he hates the hustle. He enjoys just doing the work, just working through it. And it was a perfect harmony that I would hustle, 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 hustle. And then when we got the job, I'd be like, I can't be asked to do this. And he would be like, no, I want to do this. And then I'd go out and hustle some more. So it worked really well for a while. And then we had another kid and I started working nights. And then I was about literally to die from tiredness. So we had to knock it on the head. Mm. So yeah, but there was, uh, I don't know. I, it wasn't a massive amount of hustle. I just stayed doing what I was doing. I stayed busy with the BBC, stayed on everyone's radars. You can't really hustle a job up at Radio 2. No, I guess not. It's not really that way. You just you put yourself in their eyeline, and then when their beautific gaze falls upon you, <laughs> you spring into action. It's having the experience as well and having the, the background oh, yeah. of stuff that you've done that just puts you in the right oh, my position God. at the time. Oh, absolutely. A lot of people make it into positions of presenting prowess nowadays. Not just talking about on the BBC, I'm talking about everywhere. And the problem I think they have is they've not made their mistakes mm -hmm. at the litany of shite radio stations that I worked at. You know, for free, for five pounds, for tenner, pre-recording, doing overnights, doing all this stuff. The thing is, I was awful at times and I made terrible mistakes. But I made the mistakes in a place where nobody was ever going to hear them. And I think sometimes people, whether you're reality TV or maybe a pop star, you end up in a presenting job. The problem is doing radio every day is hard. You know, you have to be, you have to know your craft. You have to know how to do things. Otherwise, it's going to burn you out. And I think a lot of people sometimes get into it. So, yeah, I think when they called me, I was ready to do it. Mm. And there was no real, you know, sometimes they say it can take whatever, three months to, to bed into a show. We weren't. We were, we were good from day one because all of us who work on the show had done our time at smaller stuff. That's getting the hours in as well, isn't it? Because like you mentioned, if you're doing a show every day or whatever it is, or, or the, yeah. the other stations. Have you done radio? No. Um, apart from I've not presented radio, I've done like I've been on radio doing music sessions and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, I've been interviewed, but never presented. And it's kind of like in my mind's eye, I kind of look, you know, that thing of like the musician who's around for a bit and then they have some specialist show. I'd love to do a show about guitar or something like that, for example, mm. would be fantastic. Just, you know interviewing people about guitars and that sort of stuff you know that kind of thing i could I could imagine doing but so that's a I, podcast series that's that's a fabulous podcast series the podcasting actually has been really good for that like interviewing people and talking to people because it's that thing of i always feel like as i'm talking to them there's a bit where i've said god i must be talking absolute rubbish and then if you listen to it back in the edit you're like actually that was quite an interesting question mm -hmm. to them there, <laughs> which i wouldn't have noticed otherwise it's like improvising on stage i guess you listen back, you think, oh, I played some good stuff there that I might not have even noticed that I did. But something that I have done that I think there's a bit of a link with what you were mentioning earlier was sort of improv. So I've done some comedy improv mm. and that kind of thing. And it's like high stakes improv for you. You're on the radio and knowing what you say will be live to however many people in that instance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I truly thought about it, it would blow my mind, especially when I've covered <laughs> Steve Wright's show because you literally, you know, you're talking to millions of people that's, every time you open the microphone. That's the biggest but, show in the country, isn't it, I would guess, Steve? Right? Uh, no. Close to. Ten. ten at half ten when Popmaster on, I think, is the biggest. But, you know, we're talking the difference between six and a half million and seven million. You know, it's, we, we don't it's a phenomenal amount of people. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a phenomenal amount of people. But 
it's it's a fewfold for me on Radio Two. One is when you start radio, you're always you're always trained to talk to one person. Mm. That's the thing. You talk to one person. That's why you should like a modern, like a modern thing. Which whenever anybody says to me, "What tip would you give me?" That's the one because I hear people, especially on YouTube, go, "Hey, you guys, I hate hey you guys," because immediately you are making people an audience. I mean, maybe it's a difference nowadays. I was talking to my wife about this. Maybe people want to feel more of a tribe rather than individual. But on radio, it was all about you. Thank you for listening. It's great that you're going to get if you want to get in touch rather than if you all want to get in touch. The point is, you make somebody an individual mm-hmm. because then through the magic of radio and the fact that this is beaming out into your ears, you feel you're connected. It's the beauty and, you know, it's that it's that ability to make someone feel like it's just them listening at any one time. So in some way, you're in a radio studio and you, you do that and you can trick yourself into thinking you're just speaking to no one. If you let it get on top of you, then my God, you'll fall apart. The other thing is, I've done a lot of hours on the radio and I can sort of, even if I get nervous, I can deal with the nerves. I know how to deal with the nerves and I trust my own ability to do that and i think you know it's not that i don't get nervous i think this would be for a lot of people whether they're acting in front of you know a thousand people or whatever it's not that you don't get nervous Mm. you might get blasé about it but you know that if you get into trouble you're you have a standard which will get you through it might not be your best night you know if i did a link and i was really nervous about it it might not be my best link but it would still be good it would still be passable it would still be professional and the other thing is i've never for some reason radio 2 doesn't make me nervous he says, completely throwing away the two points he just made. But for some reason, I've always felt at home here. And it's bizarre because every other radio show I've tried to do hard, every other TV show I've tried to do something else here, it just feels fine. And I have, I made a, I made a bit of a mistake on one of the, the Steve Wright shows. And uh, I basically, the button wasn't working properly and I double pressed it and I was playing out a pre-recorded part and it, it dropped my bit. So you hear me go on and it's quite obvious that I had made a mistake and technically it was a fuck up. The thing is, it didn't throw me. And I, I weirdly, anything else, I'd have been like, oh my God, everyone thinks I'm rubbish. Oh my God, the end of the world. So yeah, I don't know. It's a it's, weird place, but then you know, you fall back on your training. And it's an element of, I guess, things probably have gone wrong so many times in shows that you've done, as you mentioned in yeah. perhaps when it's not massively oh, high course, stakes. Yeah. But yeah. You, you're like, what's the worst that can happen? I've already dealt with a problem worse yeah. than this before. I mean, yeah, your question as well was improvising live on the radio. You're never truly improvising. You might have a little quip. You might have something else that comes off the back of it. But really, you're, you're A, you'll have an idea of what you're going to do. B, you've done so many hours of radio that you know how these things work and you fall into, you know, rhythms of how you do things. You'll have done jokes before. You know how to talk up to a song. All these things come into it. Mm. And with a lot of improv, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm right in saying this, a lot of your stuff, I mean, obviously you're improvising there and then, but you will know the people you work with so well that you'll have done different bits before. And if stuff isn't pre-written, you might have an idea of which way it would go and you know you can bounce off each other. You know, you might know where A is and where B is. How you get between A and B is the interesting thing. You meander, you go off on little things, but you know where you're, you know where you're ending. Mm. And I, I, that's, that's a lot of what radio is like, especially if you're, you're doing the sort of radio I'm doing, which is, I know where I'm starting. I know where I'm getting out. How I get between the two might meander, might be slightly improvisational, but it will be, I know where I've got to get to. Mm. And that is always, you. but you again, it comes down to training. It comes down to time in the saddle. Like I remember we had, I was doing a show the other night and we have a timed end of the show and all our news is we have to do it on time. So at 10 seconds to the hour, I have to fire the bed. Then in the final hour, I have to fire it at 31 seconds past. And for some reason, the wrong bed was in. 
So I talked up to it and I fired it and it fired the wrong thing. It fired another song, which it shouldn't have done. So I had to, while still talking, without dropping it, and I did this all naturally. And I sort of, at that point, I was like, my God, maybe I'm actually all right at what I do. I managed to find the other bed while still talking, mentally work out the time I had to hit with what I'd lost. I worked out my head, still hit it and still got to the news on time without dropping it. But I, I, how I did it, I don't know. I just, it was one of those moments. I was like, oh my God, please somebody, do I win an award for this? <laughs> my finest moments and nobody would have known. <laughs> we know now, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. about when you're interviewing people? So like, you know, that's not something I'd done much of before last November when I started doing this podcast thing. And, you know, there's been a few people I've come to interview and I'm like, I'm a bit nervous about this, mainly because... I don't want to look like a bit of a dick, really, in any of the things that I say I, to them. Yeah, I uh, suffer from that. Yeah, as if they're going to care particularly, I suppose. But, you know, these people have given up a bit of time. I guess it's different if they're appearing on a radio show to plug something. Does that make them friendly or yeah, less friendly? I, I mean, <sighs> I, mean I, I, I think if you interview someone, you should know about them, mm. at the very least. I think, I think you should know what you want out of them as well and I, you know i think i think it's i mean don't get me wrong i've done interviews where i haven't i haven't researched at all which has been absolutely my bad and i've always been found out and it's been crap interviews and i think you get the best interviews when you know something about them once again i think it's you know my, my wife did a load of interview training on this and she told me about it and it's almost like what do you want your interviewer to say you work you almost work that out beforehand yeah and then you know you ask them the questions repeatedly until you get what you want um, and you know, if they say something funny, you bounce off it. You should always. So the the way I tend to plan an interview is, I'll plan a load of questions. I'll know which direction I want the interview to go. And if they say something funny, I'll always be listening, and I'll and I'll jump off the back of it. So you should never write an interview because that's the worst thing you do. Because I would ask you a question about the last play you were in, and then you would tell me something really interesting about what had happened, and someone's trousers exploded, and you know, and there was there was feces everywhere and then i would ask you about the last so you know without picking up on that i would then ask you about the next song so interviewing really is just the ability to listen but know where you're going mm -hmm. listening on its own isn't enough because then you'll just end up with a mess of an interview mm -hmm. it also depends on how much time you've got absolutely also depends you know if you know you've only got six minutes then you don't really have a lot of wiggle room if you especially if you've got to do a load of whatever they're plugging mm. I was interviewing Joanna Lumley recently and she was so brilliant, but I had so little time with her. Mm. And I turned up late. Turned up late for Joanna Lumley. Can you believe it? And she was really nice about it. <laughs> Surprised me. What have been some of the experiences that haven't been so good with people then? Or maybe you won't say, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think who had been a terrible interview. I interviewed a guy, you can find this online. I don't still to this day don't know why I, I don't know why they uploaded it. I was working for Absolute at one of the festivals, Reading, Lee. It wasn't Reading or Leeds. It was name another festival, not Reading or Leeds. The other big, uh, like big, big rock. So big, big Glastonbury. Um, no, um, Reading, Leeds, Glastonbury. I don't know. There used to be a V Festival, didn't there? Um, v V Festival. Oh, okay. It was V Festival. Yeah, um, not bad. I was there, and I was a massive fan of the Eels mm -hmm. and um, Mark Oliver. Is it Mark Oliver? Mark Oliver Everett. He says. I always love it when you go, I'm a massive fan of that. You don't know anything about it. <laughs> I can't think what his name is. E from the Eels anyway. And I loved a couple of their albums. And I was obsessed by them when I was growing up. And when it was said that he was on the list of interviews, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I don't think I've ever prepared for an interview as in depth as that one. And, you know, and it was, 
I've re-listened to a load of albums. I researched the lyrics. I've never, ever worked as hard because I was a bit like, oh, my God, this is like a childhood dream of mm-hmm. interviewing the guy of an album that I was obsessed with. Um, and I interviewed him and he got off the bus and he was a complete dick. Just uh, just awful. Every question was like, oh, well, yeah, whatever. That's what you think. Bothered. You know, it was it was it was it was as it was as rubbish as that in my mind. Maybe it wasn't as bad as that thinking back. And I haven't ever been able to bring myself to, to look at it. I mean, feel free to find it and stick it in if you want, because it's it's in there. It's um, yeah, it's an absolute thing. And I got slated by all his fans underneath it. Oh. It was it was the worst interview I've ever done, by far. Like by far, it was awful. Other than that, the majority of people I've interviewed have had something to sell. They're interviewed for a reason. It's in their better interests to to be nice. Mm. And I think as well, be nice to them. They'll be nice to you. Nine times out of ten. There's been a couple of times recently I've interviewed people who've had agendas, but even then you can you can tend to be able to to bring them around. Mm. Like I've started interviews with people who I've seen have got a bit of a, you know, I don't like you for whatever reason. And you can bring them around. You just gotta be nice. And then slag them off afterwards. <laughs> On podcasts, ideally. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say who it was, but yeah. It wasn't it was a it was a difficult interview, but we got it round in the end and it was fine. No one noticed. I just it was just awful at the time. Well that's really interesting. I mean that's quite a skill in itself, isn't it? To take something that could potentially have been but it's difficult. Your job. Yeah. It's but it's the it's the ego of the interviewer. It's the ego of the interviewer. Mm. The worst thing you can hear in interviews are realistically, a good interviewer, you shouldn't even know they're there. You should not be proving your knowledge of the subject matter by asking a big long question which proves how clever you are. It happens all the time in esports. It happens loads where they feel they've got to, what's the word, validate validate themselves in front of the audience. When realistically, the question is something very simple. Talk me through that moment rather than this moment. Talk me through that moment where I saw you do this and then you did this. You see it in sport as well where someone's interviewing whoever. Let's go Robin Van Persie for the, uh, for the, old, the old Arsenal of it all. Um, and the interview will say, oh, I, I saw what you did there and you went down the left ring and you crossed it and headed it. And it was a good save by the keeper and the skill that you showed. Uh, Talk me through it. And it's like, well, you've just said it. You've just absolutely said it. What's the point of that? (laughs) Realistically, you should never hear an interviewer in an interview. It should be all about the interviewing. There's that great clip of Pete Townsend, like in the 60s, Tommy era. And he's on German TV. And it's a question in English, but the German guy, and it's about three minutes long about how you must have thought. he goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, brilliant. Because it's like what I was going to say, you've just literally said everything that I could have said about my album. Yeah, but I guess a lot of the times you want to you want to you want to prove how much you know of the subject matter. I also think as well sometimes it's better not being a fan of the person you interview. As proved by the I whole do, I, yeah, thing, I guess. I, yeah, I do struggle as well with how much I should know about things. Like on radio, too, I've interviewed people, and I'm like, I know nothing of your back catalogue. I know nothing of you, and I've got myself into a bit of a corner with how much do I need to explain who you are because I didn't know. Or do I look like an idiot explaining what you do? You know, yeah. Your interest in other stuff outside of radio and music, so particularly the sports thing. Because mm. I've got, you know, I'm doing music and acting and all the other stuff, yeah. and I'm interested in loads of different things. And I've had points where I'm sort of thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doing too many things at once. I should really focus on one to make it successful or whatever. And then I think, oh, fuck it. I'm interested in these things. I'm going to do them if they're successful or not. Mm. But has had has having a sort of wide interest in different stuff been useful in your career? So it's given you some gigs actually, hasn't it? I guess on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
Well, it depends. It depends on the time. I mean, I am possibly an old school style presenter in the sense that I have no real skills outside of just being me. The ability of technically can do TV or radio. Um, and I am, I would say, all right at it. And I would say that I'm more right person. But I am, but I've lived through times where when I started out, you, you had to have an accent. It was very cool to have a Northern accent, an Irish accent, a Geordie accent, mm. a Southern. It was, it was cool to have an accent, and I didn't. I live through a time now where you need to be a specialist. You know, lots of people who do a lot of presenting on TV are a specialist in something, whether right. it be houses or it's science yeah. or it's, you know, so realistically, the sort of light entertainment thing that I do isn't as, it's still big, of course, but it's, it's possibly not in vogue anymore. But I, you know, having a wide range of interests, and I do, I am a, a master of absolutely nothing, but I am a jack of all trades through the fact that I can't concentrate on any, mm. any one thing. And it's not even through, it's, you know, it's not through design, it's just through my nature. Mm. On your show, how much freedom have you got when it comes to what you play? <laughs> I get one song per show. But a lot of people go, oh my God, that's terrible. I come from commercial radio. Having one song per show is apps, you know, is a luxury for me. One song per show is luxury. Um, because in commercial radio, you get zero choice whatsoever. You're given a playlist and you play it. So, it, you know, it's always, the job for me has always been you turn up, you look at music, you play it. And mm. You are passionate about it. Luckily on radio too, the music is 90% stuff that I like anyway. The other thing I'd say is, okay, choose your own radio. You know, say I play, I think I play 12 songs an hour. Of those, I would say four are playlist. Could you think of, so I do a three-hour show. That's eight songs an hour, 24 songs per show. Could you come up with 24 times five, 120 songs per week to put into a radio show? It, it would be a nightmare. It'd be great for the first three days. And then I'd be like, just, I'm sticking whatever. The division bell on. I can't deal with it. <laughs> so no, I have no, I have no real free play. But it's fine because I like Radio 2's music. And that one song is, uh, you know, in a show. <laughs> yeah we call it the yawn chorus so i play it at 205 <laughs> no it's later than that 2010 we put it out and um it was used to be just a free play but now we do it thematically uh, so last what was last week i forget what last week was oh we did long players so it had to be songs over six minutes this week we're doing great songs to travel to um uh, so we've done some great songs already the, what's the greatest song to drive to go on think of all those top gear albums oh man it's an obvious one, but there's a few of them Eagles songs that are always good, isn't there? Uh, Peaceful, Easy Feeling, is it? That's a good one. I'm not an Eagles fan, man. See, this is it. If I was to interview one of the Eagles, I'd be like, yeah. I know like two of you. <laughs> I know Hotel California, and that's about it. <laughs> I drive to... Uh, quite, no, the, sorry, I drive to quite a bit of Zeppelin, actually. I find something about Zeppelin helps me get the right frame of mind for driving. Weird. Never listen, never listen, never listen to a full Zeppelin album. I know some of the songs. We... Um, uh, we're going to end the week on Golden Earring Radar Love, which for me is like the ultimate driving song. Ultimate driving song. I'm very excited about it. Okay, OJ, that's great. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, all of our comments about social media aside, if people did want to sort of get in touch with you or see what you're up to, what's the best way of them doing that? Oh, as long as they don't send me any praise, all right? I want criticism <laughs> only, unfounded criticism. Uh, OJ Borge on Twitter, I guess. OJ underscore Borge on Instagram. 
you go on Instagram, you tend to see me with my feet on a desk listening to music. That is my trope now, I guess. That and running around. I, I keep having these moments where on Instagram, on the stories, I will do my journey back to the car <laughs> and I will theme it to music. And I sometimes run around, I put the phone down or do ridiculous stuff. If anyone has a CC, the CCTV footage of it, I must look unhinged, putting my phone down and dancing around in a car park on my own. Great for the socials, terrible for my reputation in real life. <laughs> yeah, which which is probably true of so many things, I guess. But there you go. Thanks so much, AJ, for taking the time to talk to me. That was great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>